Varmt välkommen. Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med författaren Colson Whitehead i samtal med Daniel Sandström. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast och jag är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i detta stora allkonsthus vid Särgelstorg i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början. Hello, um, uh, good to see so many people here. If see is the right word. Uh, um, thank you for all for coming. My name is Daniel Sandström. I am publisher at Abbeponius Förlag. And um, here is Colson, as Ingmar stated. And um, the reason that we are here, uh, the most obvious reason, is that Colson has written this book, The Underground Railroad, uh, that has been... Um, To say that it's been a huge success is, is kind of an understatement. It's probably the biggest literary success uh, in a decade or even more. Nominated now to the Man Booker Award, but also the winner of National Book Award, the Pulitzer Prize, and the Arthur C. Clarke Award, um, which we can... <laughs> yes. Um, and to quote... Um, To quote the, the publisher in the U.S. that you have, Bill Thomas, he wrote in the the early edition of of, of this one, the book that was uh, handed out to to uh, early readers, he said, "Having been in this business for 29 years, I've learned the dangers of hype, so I usually try to contain myself." Uh, and but he also states, "But Colson Whitehead's achievement is so extraordinary, I can't." And that's the truth. That's the truth. Uh, for me, uh, Underground Railroad is a novel of the same statue as, as um, uh, the uh, Tin Drum by Gunter Grass and, uh, or Midnight Children, a novel that will take uh, not only stay with you uh, for, for a week or a month, but will stay with you for your whole life. So Colson, uh, what brought you to this book? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, thank all you guys for, for coming out tonight. Thank you for publishing me. And uh, um, Well, it was about now 17 years ago, and I was sitting on my couch and came across a reference to the Underground Railroad. Um, in real life, it was a network of people who helped slaves escape from the South to the free states in the North. You might hide them in your wagon and take them 200 miles, hand them off to somebody else, uh, put them in a, hide them in the hull of your boat and take them to the North. And it was a human network. And um, the term came from uh, the 1840s when a slave master woke up. And at this point, the Railroad was transforming America. It was a very powerful uh, concept. And he woke up, and one of his slaves had disappeared. And he said, quite surprised, it's as if she disappeared on, under, on an underground railroad. Um, and that took hold as a name for this human network. And when, when you're a kid in the States, when you first hear it, uh, those two words, you think it's a literal subway beneath the earth. And then your teacher hopefully uh, explains how it actually works. It's really impractical. We have a subway in New York City. We can barely get that to run, let alone a tunnel 2,000 miles to the south. Um, but that afternoon in my apartment, I was thinking, oh, wouldn't it be weird, a weird premise for a story if uh, it was a literal railroad? And so there are no characters, nothing about American history or slavery, just making uh, that image real. And I knew that if I tried it back then, uh, when I was 30, I would have fucked it up. Um, I thought if I waited a little more and wrote some more books, I might become a better writer and be able to pull it off in a technical sense. If I was older and wiser, um, 
if I waited and got older and wiser, <laughs> uh, saw the world, uh, traveled on a tramp steamer, stabbed a hobo with a penknife, and used that worldly <laughs> wisdom, I, I might do the subject uh, justice. And so each time I finished a book, I would think, am I ready? And the answer was always no, until about three years ago, I had sold a book to my editor, Bill Thomas, who you just mentioned, but I was having some doubts. And so I decided to tell my wife about this Underground Railroad idea. As some of you know, um, sometimes in a marriage you have to make conversation to kill the silences. And so <laughs> I told her about the idea and she said, well, honey, I don't want to say that the book you're working on now about a Brooklyn writer going through a midlife crisis <laughs> is dumb per se, um, but his other idea sounds really good. And it occurred to me that I've been putting it off for so long, yeah. maybe now is the time to do it. Um, and so you, you, you say that with, for technical reasons that you were kind of wary of doing it, that you were uh, not the writer yet that you wanted to be in order to, to, to take it on. Uh, but was there also an, an emotional point of view that you were, uh, I mean, it is a big subject and it's one of the, the true uh, crimes of, of American history. Uh, so what, had, what kind of relationship did you have to to, to the, the history of, of slavery in America? Well, what, what did you learn in school, for instance? Uh, we know it's the holy subject. It's our, our origin story in America. Um, but we don't learn much about it. You know, I think for most people, their first introduction, deep introduction to slavery, is the miniseries Roots, which I know is a big here, but you know, yeah, it was it huge was. in America. And when I was eight, my parents made all, all us kids watch it with them, and it was a huge uh, national obsession. Um, but in school, you know, in fourth grade, there's maybe like 10 minutes on slavery and then 40 minutes on Abraham Lincoln and that's it. And then in high school, maybe there's 10 minutes on segregation and 40 minutes on Martin Luther King, our hero, and then that's it. Um, so there's no, it's not paid attention to, it's skipped over. Um, and uh, so when I had the idea, I, I mean, I didn't feel... I was mature enough to, to handle it. I thought, um, I use humor and satire a lot in my books, that sort of distancing mechanism. And at that time, it was so, such a part of my personality. I, there was no way I could conceive of doing uh, a serious book about slavery at that point. No, okay. So when, you, when you, you, your wife was kind enough to let you know that the other idea wasn't maybe the best idea, uh, did you start to do research? Or how did you go about practically? Um, uh, well, I was teaching, so I couldn't get to it for a year and a half. And then when I had time, I, you know, I researched it and wrote it in a year. It was very fast. Um, the main uh, research was rereading the famous slave narratives of people like Harriet, uh, Harriet Jacobs and Frederick Douglass. And then um, in the 1930s, during the Great Depression, the U.S. government hired writers to interview former slaves and captured their oral histories. They wanted to put the writers back to work and they wanted to capture these life stories before the people died. So people who had been kids or teenagers at the time of the Civil War. And um, you know, some of the accounts in those uh, interviews are two, two paragraphs, some are two pages, some are 10 pages. And they really gave me uh, a real overview of, uh, of plantation life and the sort of smaller details um, that hopefully make it sound realistic. Uh, the nouns and the verbs, you know, do we say wagon or buggy in 1850? Um, and the answer is? I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> one of those. <laughs> one of those, yeah. Um, but, you know, I 
sort of hoovered up all these, all these, all, all the language, and hopefully it, it, it works. Did you know when you started to write the novel? Because I think we should go into the to the basic narrative of the book, and and the the hero of this book is Cora, uh, and who is Cora? Cora is a 17 or 16 year old girl. She doesn't know how old she is. You know, slave masters didn't keep that those kind of rigorous records of their property. In the same way, you might have a um, a vacuum cleaner and know vaguely when you got it. Why would you know the day you took it home from the store? It's a piece of property. Um, so she's on a uh, Randall plantation in Georgia. Her mother has run away years before, which of course drives her psychology. Her mother is an example of someone who gets out and also a counter of some, counterexample of someone who has abandoned Cora uh, to the hell of the plantation. And um, there's another, a second element to the structure of the book, and that's that... Uh, once she gets on the Underground Railroad, literal, literal train, each state she goes through, South Carolina, North Carolina, is a different state of American possibility. And uh, for years when I would tell my friends about the idea, they're like, oh, that sounds stupid. And then when I said, like Gulliver's Travels, they finally, I was like, oh, I understand what <laughs> the idea is. So she goes to these different alternative Americas. There's a, a white supremacist state, a black utopian state, and um, each place is like a different arena for her to figure out different ideas of freedom and also to become a person. She starts off as an object, a piece of property, and then she grows into personhood. Mm -hmm. You have uh, something that you could read from us, for us now from the beginning. Of, of sure, this is the um, opening section. And I knew before I got to the core story, I wanted to have an overture of a slave's life. And uh, that became the opening chapter of her grandmother as she's taken from Africa suffers the Middle Passage, and then comes to America. Her name is Ajari. The first time Caesar approached Cora about running north, she said no. This was her grandmother talking. Cora's grandmother had never seen the ocean before that bright afternoon in the port of Ouida, and the water dazzled after her time in the fort's dungeon. The dungeon stored them until the ships arrived. Dahomean raiders kidnapped the men first, then returned to her village the next moon for the women and children, marching them in chains to the sea, two by two. As she stared into the black doorway, Ajari thought she'd be reunited with her father down there in the dark. The survivors from her village told her that when her father couldn't keep the pace of the long march, the slavers stove in his head and left his body by the trail. Her mother had died years before. Cora's grandmother had been, was sold a few times on the trek to the fort, passed between slavers for glass beads. It was hard to say how much they paid for her in Ouida, as she was part of a bulk purchase. 88 human souls for 60 crates of rum and gunpowder, the price arrived upon after the standard haggling in Coast English. Able-bodied men and child-bearing women fetched more, but more than the juveniles, making an individual accounting difficult. The nanny, the ship, was out of Liverpool and had made two previous stops along the Gold Coast. The captain staggered his purchases rather than find himself with a cargo of singular culture and disposition. Who knew what brand of mutiny his captives might cook up if they shared a common language? This was the ship's final port of call before they crossed the Atlantic. Two yellow-haired sailors rode a jarry out to the ship, humming, white skin like bone. Yeah. And so it begins. Ajari, 
that's, that is the grandmother of, of Korra, our, uh, our hero. Um, so in order to, con to come up with somebody like Korra, uh, somebody who has very little knowledge of the world, what she knows is actually the plantation. Uh, what kind of uh, rightly challenges did you have in order to make her uh, a vibrant, uh, capturing uh, figure in the novel? Well, there, there are a few things. You know, before I start writing, um, I do a lot of outlining. I have to know the beginning and the end. The middle can be fuzzy, but I have to know what the destination is. And um, so I know most of the plot points. And, um, but I don't know what a character, how a character walks and talks until they have to appear in the book. And so um, there are two important moments in the first section uh, that defined Cora for me. So I had a map of who she was in, these, in the future encounters. There's the psychology of her mother leaving. And then uh, at two points, she stands up for herself. There's a bully who wants to take her garden that she's inherited from her mother, a small uh, little plot of land. And she stands up to him, even though she's alone on the plantation. And then she shields a boy, uh, a 10-year-old boy, from being whipped. And of course, she's seen this many times. People are, w are punished all the time. Uh, but this time, something in her moves her to, uh, to shield him. And you know, I'm, I'm writing in 2015. I've lived uh, you know, a pretty calm life. So I have to project myself into uh, this previous time and figure out what kind of character, what kind of personality would be able to conceive of this trip off the plantation. And, um, and those two moments were uh, really useful in sort of providing a map of how she would act in further mm -hmm. situations. She also encounters uh, violence and cruelty on a scale that I think I, I would almost say is unimaginable uh, if, until you read it and you realize that this is the truth, uh, this happened to people. Uh, how did you go about, um, as a writer, with, with that kind of challenge um, to portray this in a way that it would really uh, be... Uh, central part of the novel without uh, eating up the novel, so to speak. I couldn't, I couldn't tell the story without uh, having a realistic depiction of slavery. I play so much with history once she gets on the railroad and juxtapose different historical episodes that um, I wanted to get it right before I started playing around and the fantastic element comes in. Um, and it was devastating reading, uh, doing the research as a grown-up. Uh, I'm a father and uh, sort of finally understood in a, an adult way what it would mean to see your child beaten, abused, and sold off, uh, for a child to see their parent abused and, and tortured in that way. Um, and then realizing that I'm, you know, I really shouldn't be here. It's a miracle that anyone of my ancestors survived, that meat grinder. Um, I don't know, I, most of them I don't know where they lived in America, where they lived and died in Alabama or Florida. Um, someone survived. Um, I'm here, but it's a miracle that anyone did. And so I'm not one who feels like I have a lot of responsibilities as a writer to do anything, um, but I did feel a duty to testify in whatever small way I could for my nameless ancestors and other people who went through, mm -hmm. um, through slavery. And then Cora, she is throughout the novel hunted by uh, a, a slave hunter. Uh, his name is Ridgeway. And he, he's been described as somebody out of a, of a Cormac McCarthy novel. Uh, he's, he's true evil, I, I, I think I can say without exaggerating. Uh, but what kind of uh, challenges did you meet then uh, going down 
to the railroad. Uh, and what happens then? Uh, she goes there with Caesar, which is a, which a, another slave that has escaped. And what kind of what kind of trick did you pull at that point? Well, it's uh, it's real. Right? They they escape the plantation, go uh, beneath the earth, and there's a magnificent tunnel that someone uh, has constructed. And they go they they go to South Carolina. She comes out of the ground and sees a skyscraper. And for me, that was a really liberating moment because I had this idea for so many years, and I finally got to the part that um, I've been waiting to get to for so long. Uh, it tells a reader. We're in a place where there are skyscrapers, 12-story buildings in 1850, which was very rare. And uh, when she sees that, uh, you know, the novel you know, changes radically. Um, and then, unfortunately, the next section, I had to introduce Ridgeway, the slave catcher, and I no had no idea who he was. So for many months in my novel, there was just a, a blank piece of paper that said, Ridgeway, intro, TK, uh, to come here. You know, the terrible thing about novels is that they take a long time and they're really a pain that sort of way. But if you don't figure out something uh, uh, in the writing, you just wait six months. And um, I wanted a, you know, a formidable antagonist for my formidable, formidable protagonist. And uh, I write a lot about New York. I'm from New York, I love the place. And I was a little upset that I was writing about a book set in the South. And uh, I was like, damn, you know. Um, and then Eric Foner, a American historian wrote a, a short book about the Underground Railroad centered in New York City. And it centered around the, the legal strategies between slave catchers and abolitionist lawyers. They were all, all sort of fighting over slaves who were former runaway slaves who were caught in the jail. And I was like, yes, I can put New York for two pages. Ridgeway comes to New York. It's an important part. And um, things just clicked. And he's really a articulator of different powerful energies that shaped America, white supremacy, uh, manifest destiny, uh, imperial power. Um, and so when he finally catches up with Cora, um, they get to Tennessee, which is a sort of blasted landscape ravaged by wildfire and yellow plague, which you know, sort of savaged the country at that point. And for me, you know, it's another exciting point. Um, <laughs> when things come together, you've been trying to get to, you know, people, I finally get them together, and I guess I envisioned Tennessee as like a wasteland out of uh, Waiting for Godot. Uh, there's two people sort of bickering, mm. uh, maybe there's like a stump, and um, uh, they finally get together and sort of have this duel. Because mm. that's another thing about uh, the Underground Railroad. I think that it's obvious that you, when you talk about the book, that you will uh, linger on all the details with the, the railroad, of course, because it's such a... Uh, great thing to, to conceive, but uh, it's also a very, I would say, an action-packed story. Um, there, there's pages of, of, of slower pace, but in general, it's, it's a wild ride, to, to be honest. Uh, how, did you, how did you come about with that one? Because did you, it, f it feels very cinematic, at the same time it's very uh, imaginative, and, and tell us about the, this, this, well, this, I mean, the pacing you know, of the story. Uh, the book does move. I mean, I think the the element of danger and suspense is built into this life or death escape. If she was caught at any moment, she could be put to death. Um, so that's part, you know, natural part of the story that I took on. And then, um, uh, you know, for me, you know, s plot and plotlessness, uh, reality and fantasy are just different storytelling tools, and you pick the right one for the job. So um, I've written books that have a very linear plot, and um, 
provide the pleasures of that kind of story. I've written um, books that are more voice-oriented. Uh, my book, Sag Harbor, about growing up in the 80s, uh, doesn't have much of a, a plot at all. It's about a summer and that sort of very incremental movement we make uh, as, we grow, as we grow up. You know, I think you, you only get 0.11000001% smarter over the course of three months. And so it's a very atmospheric book, and hopefully you like him. You know, you take one plot, one element out that gives the um, reader pleasure, like plot, then you have to replace it with something. And so hopefully, you know, uh, Benji in that book is enough of an interesting character to, to carry you. Um, so I'm always just figuring out the right tool. And um, if I'd written a historical novel, I couldn't have that play with uh, American history that's in the book. It would just be a story of someone escaping north. Um, and so the fantastic structure allows me to have, uh, tell a different, uh, bigger story. Um, and then uh, suspense and a sort of conventional, the pleasures of a, a plot-driven book also seem to fit with the mm. story. Mm -hmm. um, if we stick to the, to the, uh, the notion of the rail, uh, railroad, um, it allows you, as you said, to go not only, I mean, with the William book, we are like in the mid uh, 1850s in, in the US. But as soon as you go down to the railroad, you actually, I would say, al almost travel in time. Uh, that you go to different states, and I think there's an also a, uh, a Cora goes to a different state, we go with her, and there's a, a sentence like this, every s state was a different state, a different state as a di different state of mind or state of mindset. Uh, so what happens in the different states? You have, uh, for instance, uh, when Cora gets to, to the Carolinas, she, she first goes to South Carolina, right? That's right? It's the first stop. Yeah, yeah. what happens there? Um, she... Uh in, in, in South Carolina, they've ha they have a program where they buy slaves from their owners and give them jobs and housing and education in a sort of parallel of social programs in America in the 1960s. Uh, but of course, this being a novel, not everything is as good as it seems. And it, it turns out, um, uh, well, I guess I don't want to give too much away. But so, um, but it's really, you know, a sort of, uh, examination of of um, of a seemingly benevolent uh, government and intervention into people's lives, and of course, uh, there's good intervention and bad intervention. And um, and again, you know, if it was just a historically accurate story of a, a slave running north, I couldn't have that conversation. She goes to North Carolina, which has the sort of one of the sort of bigger changes. Uh, to American history, and it's a white supremacist state, and they've come up with a final solution to the Negro problem, which is to exterminate any black person that they find. And I mentioned Harriet Jacobs, who wrote a slave narrative. Um, uh, she spent seven years in an attic before she could get passage north. And you know, we think uh, attic and Frank, and then there's an opportunity to expand the notion of. Uh, this examination of the oppression of blacks in America to bring in uh, the story of Jews in, in Europe. Uh, Nazi scientists got all of their sort of racial theories from American uh, racist scientists in the 1900s. Their theories about purity, um, uh, sup superiority of the white race, um, ideas about eugenics. And so, in, in many ways, 
uh, the practices of Nazi Germany were a logical extension of what was going on in the United States. Um, so being in Europe, in Oregon, uh, on the west coast of the states, uh, black people couldn't own property or live or, or work until 1920s, which seems so late. And so I sort of bring that into my uh, hellish North Carolina. And so um, all, these, all these different plates allow, allow for this sort of larger conversation about mm -hmm. um, American history. And, and I wouldn't want to take this book as a, a guide to what actually happened in America. It's a novel. Mm -hmm. um, in the same way, you don't go to the Wizard of Oz and think you can step into tornadoes. But um, uh, it does sort of rove widely. But it also enhances the idea of history and the, what, the, the, the things that history will do to us for generations and generations, uh, that, you, uh, that you will carry this with you, uh, whether you know it or not. There is a section in when, when Cora goes to, to uh, South Carolina where she actually goes to something that's called the, the Museum of National, Natural Wonders. Uh, and that museum is a, is a building where she eventually gets a job, you might say, where she, uh, she has to pose as a, as a, as a slave. Uh, and that seems to me very much, and uh, well, it's very uh, uh, obvious that it's also common on the way that we've been treating uh, slave history throughout, throughout uh, ever since, basically, making it an object of study and, and also distancing ourselves from, from those horrid experiences. Uh, did, was that part of the original uh, conception of the novel, that you also want not only to, uh, to, to write about history, but the way the history walks with us, so to speak, through generations and generations? No, I mean, we, we do carry it you know, with us, and that moment is, is, is very important. Um, she gets a job in a museum, and she's a, li a living actor in the dioramas uh, about life, on the life in Africa, life in the Middle Passage, uh, life in a plantation, and they're very sanitized versions. And um, so I get to talk about how we teach history and receive history and delete history when we make the stories. And that section, you know, is important to me for many different reasons. Um, uh, there's that discussion about history. Um, there's a real-life antecedent. You know, uh, uh, black people in the States were displayed in circuses and carnivals and world's fairs, uh, as, and they put them in sort of jungle garb and have them pretend to be straight off the boat from Africa. Uh, and so I put that into the, into the museum. Um, Cora starts off as an object and becomes a person as she moves on. And she's always been gazed upon in the, in the fields, uh, gazed upon in this museum. And then she starts gazing back and gets agency. So uh, it's a moment where she sort of comes into her own she can interpret the false history presented to her. Uh, she could be an agent, a powerful agent in her, in her own life as she starts to torment people on the other side of the glass. Um, and then for me, as a writer, I remember I got to that point and the museum section was two pages and I thought, oh, I'm done. And... Uh, what, what, really do you mean, what do you mean by that? You know, if, uh, it's, you know, it sort of drove home. I was, I was right to, to have waited. If I, it was five or ten years before, Instead of two pages, it would have been like this Pinchonian 20-page uh, uh, bit about who's the curator, where do you learn this craft, who made the dioramas, uh, who are all the patrons. And I felt like I sort of done that, and it wasn't appropriate to the pacing of the story and, and uh, took too much, away, too much away from Cora. And so 
Um, for me, that's another point in the book when I was writing. I was like, oh, this is Coulson, Coulson uh, in 2015 writing this book and not Coulson you know, in, uh, in two th- year 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and one thing that makes all these things happen is the, the, the masterly treatment of genre that you have. I mean, some, one reviewer described it as a science fiction meeting fantasy and a picaresque, picaresque adventure tale. Uh, against the backdrop of reimagined 19th century America. Gulliver's Travels and The Odyssey has also been mentioned and, and a lot of other literary forebears like uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. And it seems to me almost impossible to write a story about uh, a single person like Cora who's very much flesh and bone to us and we care about her so deeply. And at the same time, you, you put her into a... F- uh, such a literary and fantastical element uh, as, as with all these uh, genres and, and the, I mean, like the traveling with the Gulliver's Travel. How did you, that, that's almost like squaring the circle. How did you go about in doing that without losing the, uh, making it too abstract, for instance? Yeah, I mean, well, I think um, uh, if I can step back and look at, look at two phases of my career, I guess it's 20 years, that's a career, I guess. But um, uh, when I started out, I would, you begin with like an abstract, abstract question I was trying to figure out. So I wrote a book about John Henry, a folklore hero in uh, the 19th century. And th- the idea for that book was just simply, uh, what if I in- updated this industrial age character for the information age? In the same way, the idea for this book was, what if I made the Underground Railroad real? And then around Sag Harbor, which is about growing up, um, being a teenager, I started with characters or situations first. And um, I was doing that sort of work in the last uh, three books. And so I think that, you know, this book sort of brings together those two sort of impulses I, I've had over the years. Um, a kooky what-if presence, uh, 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 premise, and then hopefully rooted in, in character. And I've been sort of working on that in the last couple of books, it, it seems. And so um, I think they sort of came together in this book. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. I think that, that that's also one of the things that you, while you, when you reread the book, you realize that you, um, even though you're very true to, to some of the history, stories of slavery, you're also, as you said, uh, you can't read it as, as uh, realist fiction. At the same time, you have a very, I think it's a very important thing for the book. You, uh, you have, um, ad- I mean, it's uh, small sections from newspapers in the book as well, which also, Adds to the to the blends of genre, which is v- give a very documentary feel to the novel. Uh, and those and those uh, is it ads really, or was it? Is it? They're uh, classified ads that you place in newspaper when your slave runs away. So your dog runs away, you go to the laundromat or whatever and put up a sign. Um, in the 19th century, if your slave ran away, you would go to the newspaper. And um, on the one hand, it sort of drives home how vast and, int- and intricate. Uh, slavery was. It wasn't just slave masters who kept up the system. It was um, blacksmiths, and it was some guy in a newspaper trying to catch a break. And so, um, you know, as, as a, a fiction writer, I like doing people's voices and figuring out how they talk and doing different kinds of, of, of uh, ways of, of uh, different dialects. And then, uh, but I couldn't compete with these really terse runaway slave ads, you know, that contain so much in these eight lines. Um, $30 reward for my slave Bessie, who ran away for no reason whatsoever, and of course we know why. Um, then you have to identify 
her, you know, light-skinned mulatta girl with a, a, a burn on her arm. How'd she get the burn? Um, and so, um, luckily for me, they're in the public domain, so I could just stick them wherever I wanted to. So there's four real ones, and then um, I put Cora through so much that the final one is my version, just talking to Cora. And um, at that moment, a lot of things have happened, and I sort of, it doesn't work in the scheme of the book because it's, I'm basically talking to her, and there was no runaway slave ad placed by her masters like this. But it was really just me trying to talk to her and apologize or affirm her humanity in the way that these other slave ads don't. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that you, you already mentioned that, I mean, you read Harriet Jacobs uh, and, and uh, Frederick Douglass, I mean, well-known slave narratives. Uh, were there uh, anything in those, in, or in, in the general uh, sense of the genre that you were trying to avoid in order to, to, to gain uh, extra recognition from the, from the reader or suspense? Yeah, I mean, not so much to avoid, but... Um in doing the research, you know, we, uh, there were definitely previous depictions that didn't ring true to me. Um, for movies, uh, we had this idea of the slave plantation as a place where maybe there's one Uncle Tom, but everyone else is like really working together. Uh, and it doesn't, perhaps it speaks to my psychology, but it doesn't seem right. You know, writing in 2015, what we know of trauma and um, post-traumatic stress, although they're not post-anything. Uh, their psychologies are, are damaged, and so everyone is sort of fighting for that extra bite of food, um, uh, that extra sip of water. And I think if you have 100 people in a room, 10 are great, 10 are terrible, uh, you know who you are, and, mo and most of us are in the middle. Um, if you've been damaged so much on the plantation, you don't, we lose that, that 10 who are great, and everyone is fighting for survival. And so um, my plantation uh, is very harsh, and I think it represents is, to me, represents a psychologically credible version of the plantation. There's a, a cabin for the outcasts called the Hob Cabin where they give, where they put the women who don't fit in. They've been tortured or they're psychologically damaged and they can't really work. Um, they're misfits like Cora. And what do we do in our society with our misfits, our mentally ill? Uh, we put them in a home where we don't have to see them. And so it seemed in this plantation of 100 people, uh, I, I could bring in uh, what I recognize from how we treat each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, as, as the novel moves on, you go from, you have, um, as you mentioned, th three major stops. You have the South Carolina, North Carolina, and then Tennessee, and quite a few other stops as well, but, but those are the ones that stick out. And then you um, come... As the more you come to the end of the novel, you, you realize that you also, I think that you, you suddenly, you're moving into the direction of our time. Uh, is that totally uh, an absurd thought, to think that you're moving in time in the novel? Well, you know, once you write the book, it's other people's. Uh. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Colson. Uh, uh, but there is a section, um, when you get to the end of the book, where you feel that there's a debate. The, uh, Cora gets to, to a farm, the Valentine farm, uh, and there's, on that Valentine farm, there are only black people on the farm, and there, there are uh, some kind of a safe haven uh, for them at that point. And they know that there's a, this is a kind of a uh, uh, place that should be ideal for them at this point, or, or uh, in the theory that is. And they have, I think, a very interesting debates about the nature of, 
of slavery and also what they can expect from America as former slaves. Uh, and it seemed to me when I read that section that it was so much a comment on what we carry with us today uh, that it al uh, almost became also a kind of a, a summary of, of, of all the issues that you've been hand I mean, having throughout the generations. Um, so what I was trying to ask you to do, all the parallels to, to, to modern issues about slavery or um, uh, the situation in America with racism and, and the way that you treat people, the police brutality and so on, they come very natural to the reader at least when you read the book. Uh, did, did, how did you uh, work with that? No, I mean, you're right. There are different points in the book where we uh, are talking about 1850 and of course we're talking about now because you know, so little has changed. And so I didn't feel I had to push those comparisons between then and now. Um, when I would read uh, stories about slave patrollers, before there was a police, there were slave patrollers who could stop any black person on the street and demand to see their identification. Uh, and if you were free, you had to have your free papers. Uh, and if you were a slave, you had to have a pass from your master. And the language that former slaves would use to describe being stopped was the same kind of language I've used uh, when I've been stopped uh, by police for walking around in a, uh, the wrong neighborhood, a white neighborhood, when I've been asked for ID and handcuffed because um, I've been in the wrong place at the wrong time. So I think just describing the slave patrollers, the connection was so clear I didn't have to, have to push it. No. And, in, and in that uh, Valentine Farm, which you know, for many years in my book was just called you know, Black Utopia question mark chapter, you know, um, yeah. uh, they have debate, you know, conservative and progressive debates about what's next for uh, the black race in 1850, um, echoing the kind of discussions held between W.E. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington and Frederick Douglass. And of course, we still have those debates today. So um, uh, can we save the damaged slave? Can we, slave? can we save the damaged citizen of the inner city who's been, that's been ravaged by drugs and alcohol? Uh, she wouldn't concentrate on people who can pull their pants up and you know don't um, talk like thugs. And so the debates that you know that uh, intellectual black intellectuals were having 150 years ago still echo in the in the same way that we talk about what do we do now about uh, what's next for a black life in America now. Mm -hmm. And and. Uh I, I, sh I, w I won't reveal anything more about the plot at that point because it co becomes very important to, to the element of surprise. But uh, it made me also think about where we are now at this point. And it seemed to me uh, uh, the success of Underground Railroad is, uh, as I said, it's, it's uh, phenomenal. And you have also, I think there's uh, quite a few elements in American popular culture where uh, slavery and, and the... the uh, uh, the heritage uh, that you, or the price that you pay for for having slavery as as a part of your national history or your own history, is very uh, is very much a topic of of, of the day. And you have uh, Twelve Years a Slave, a very a very uh, successful uh, film, uh, and also then Obama, uh, who also spoke about the book and 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 talked about the book in very I mean as an engrossing read or something. He was very he was very much uh, into this book. Uh, and it's, at the other hand, you have Trump, and you have the things that are happening now. You go from Obama to Robert E. Lee. Uh, how can you? How can you? It's it's unfathomable for somebody. Yeah, and I think everybody's sort of reeling, and every day there's some you know three or four atrocities you have to assimilate into your brain, and and in the end, the architect of it all, 
or crazy clown is, is, is Trump. Um, and it's, you know, so uh, discombobulating. Um, you know, I, I was not thinking about contemporary America when I was, when I was writing. There are certain parallels, but, I, you know, um, those parallels had always been there. Um, but it turns out if you write about white supremacy in 1850, uh, there's a good chance you might encounter white supremacy in, in, in 2017. All those energies, those primitive American energies, and they're not necessarily American also. They're, they're Swedish and uh, um, have driven so much of human culture. The desire to dominate, um, uh, to treat everything as property. Um, they don't go away. You know, 50, Obama was 51% of the population voted for him. That meant 49, 48, 46 didn't vote for him. And they vote for Trump. They're always, they have always been there since the beginning of the, of the country. Um, they reeled back at the progressive success of someone like Obama. And they're appalled by the progress of women and people of color. And uh, they wait in their bitterness. And so um, I think in a lot of countries you have that pull between the right and the left, the conservative and, and the progressive. And you know, we made a very nice advance eight years ago. And um, I think maybe naturally, unfortunately, we have to uh, uh, be pulled back. Mm -hmm. And does the, um, if the, the reception of, of the Underground Railroad and the success of it, uh, it was chosen by opera as, as her uh, novel of, of the year, basically, because she, she didn't do any novels other than, than that book that year. Uh, <laughs> uh, it all, but uh, it, it does seem to indicate that things are happening and going in the right direction. Uh, and are, you f are you feeling hopeful, or do you feel that this is a pivotal moment where things can go in the wrong direction? Um, I sort of have to feel hopeful, because I have children, and I have to hope that in the same way that my grandparents and, and parents had to hope that their children were growing up in a better world, and they did. You know, I don't think my grandparents could envision everything that's happened in terms of uh, racial progress in the last 90 years, or my parents, my parents, and I certainly couldn't have imagined a black president. Um, so uh, I sort of have to be hopeful, um, but yeah, there are many terrible things happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, so having written this novel and, and having this kind of success with it, where do you go from there? What, what kind of challenges will, will a writer like you try to take on afterwards? Well, I mean, um, before the election, I was going to write a nice, a nice heist novel, a nice crime novel. <laughs> Who isn't like that? And then I had this other secondary idea, and after the election, it seemed more compelling. And in the, in the summer, in the spring, when I was reeling from all the news out of Washington, I thought maybe I'd do the other idea, and it turned out that I'm um, writing about institutional slavery, institutional racism, really does take your mind off of institutional, ra institutional racism uh, in the world at large, uh, outside your room. So I'm, I'm traveling a lot for the book. You know, the book is really taken off, and so I get to travel to like nice places like this I've never been to before, uh, but I won't really get back to work until next summer. Mm -hmm. But do you think you've cha become changed as a writer uh, by, by the experience? Um, I don't know. I mean, um, I guess uh, I do get uh, asked. Well, I guess my baseline level of happiness is higher. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, 
wake up in the middle of the night at 4 a.m. Uh, like, my mortgage, or how am I going to pay my mortgage? I wake up at 4 a.m. like, oh, it's a pretty good year, you know? <laughs> so it's changed my general mood. Um, but when I, was, I wrote, I did have time to write 30 pages in the spring, and it was terrible as usual. Mm -hmm. So it was, it's always, always going to be terrible. Mm -hmm. And then with moments of, uh, of great fun when you figure something out, a different kind of sentence, or a different kind of character. Um, I think if the work came too easily, you're probably not doing it right. So, yeah, uh, you're going to read uh, another part from the section from the novel. Certainly, and it's yeah. um, it's from the Valentine section. And Brother Mingo, who's a conservative voice, has uh, you know Saturdays they have um, music and they debate the issues of the day. So Mingo has just talked about what he thinks is next for the Valentine Farm. And then here's Lander, who's a sort of progressive, sort of visionary voice. Brother Mingo made some good points, Lander said. We can't save everyone. But that doesn't mean we can't try. Sometimes a useful delusion is better than a useless truth. Here's one delusion, that we can escape slavery. We can't. Its scars will never fade. When you saw your mother sold off, your father beaten, your sister abused by some boss or master, did you ever think that you'd sit here today without chains, without the yoke, among a new family? Everything you ever knew told you that freedom was a trick. Yet here you are. Still we run, tracking by the good full moon to sanctuary. Valentine Farm, this place is a delusion. Who told you the Negro deserved a place of refuge? Who told you that you had that right? Every minute of your life's suffering has argued otherwise. By every fact of history, it can't exist. This place must be a delusion too. Yet here we are. And America too is a delusion, the grandest one of all. The white race believes, believes with all its heart that it is their right to take the land, to kill Indians, make war, enslave their brothers. This nation shouldn't exist if there's any justice in the world, for its foundations are murder, theft, and cruelty. Yet here we are. I'm supposed to answer Mingo's call for gradual progress, for closing our doors to those in need. I'm supposed to answer those who think this place is too close to the grievous influence of slavery and that we should move west. I don't have an answer for you. I don't know what we should do. The word we. In some ways, the only thing we have in common is the color of our skin. Our ancestors came from all over the African continent. It's quite large. Brother Valentine has the maps of the world in his library. You can look for yourself. They had different ways of subsistence, different customs, spoke a hundred different languages. And that great mixture was brought to America in the holds of slave ships, to the north, to the south. Their sons and daughters picked tobacco, cultivated cotton, worked on the largest estates and the smallest farms. We are craftsmen and midwives and preachers and peddlers. Black hands built the White House, the seat of our nation's government. The word we we are not one people, but many different people. How can one person speak for this great, beautiful race, which is not one race, but many, with a million desires and hopes and wishes for ourselves and our children? For we are Africans in America, something new in the history of the world, 
without models for what we will become. Color must suffice. It's brought us to this night, this discussion, and it will take us into the future. All I truly know is that we rise and fall as one, one colored family living next door to one white family. We may not know our way through the forest, but we can pick each other up when we fall, and we will arrive together. Uh, one thing I was thinking about while you were reading this um, beautiful, beautiful passage from the novel, uh, and also maybe the most heartbreaking passage, um, is, I mean, you, you, said you said it yourself that you did not learn so much about slavery in school. Uh, what has happened since then? How much do they teach today? How much is this part of a something, a, a, a growing consciousness of the crimes of slavery and, and the price that you pay for it. Well, you know, my, my daughter's 12, and I think um, she's had a few units on slavery, which is you know, more than I had. Um, she, she still gets so many units on the Greeks. Like every, I'll ask her like, what she's doing, and it's like, the Greeks again. It's like, how many times <laughs> are you can do Aeschylus when you know, whatever. Um, but, you know, it's a little bit more, but um, it's still not, you know, that part of American history still isn't taught as much. I've been glad that um, the, the book is you know, being taught in high school and college in American history courses. Um, you, know, you can take out different bits of the book and use that as a way to talk about different parts of American history um, and literature classes. And so, um, um, and you know, I'm not like a teacher guy. I didn't write to like tell people about slavery or have a didactic message, but um, you know the response over the over the years has been really uh, um, uh, heartening. You know, I think the one of my second readings uh, when I was still sort of figuring out how people were responding to it, an older white lady uh, in her 60s didn't get her book signed; she just sort of hovered by the signing table and just said, um, "You know, this book may be a more empathetic person." And she sort of. Uh, moved away, and I thought um, uh, people are reckoning with this part of history more, you know, not as much as they should. And in the South, I got a really warm welcome. People who are descendants of slave masters, people who grew up in houses uh, that had been built on slave money, or people who inherited uh, the riches of, of slavery, and th they were engaged with the book in a way that um, was really surprising and wonderful. So, mm -hmm. I was wondering what role. Uh, also, popular culture will play in, in this kind of narrative for our age. Uh, it's obvious to me, having read uh, your novels, I think that there's, uh, there's always elements of, of popular culture uh, that's very uh, central to them. And the, your previous novel, The Zone One, is a, is a zombie novel, uh, which is uh, obviously uh, uh, haven't been done before, uh, in, in that sense anyway. Uh, so, and now also, The Underground Railroad will be, or there are plans of, of making the TV series with, uh, with the people behind Moonlight. Uh, so how, how important is popular culture for, for the transformation of the narrative? So well, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's... Uh, I don't read German, but it just came out in Germany last week, and I also look at the, you know, oh, nice picture of me. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. And then sort of scan the text, and, you know, I'll use Google Translate, and, you know, it says you know, as in Django Unchained, you know, Tarantino's movie, and it's like, that's a reference for slavery, is <laughs> Quentin Tarantino. Um, uh, so, um, 
you know, it's, it's not, I actually like Django Unchained, but it's a, a you know, pop uh, B-movie that's really great. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm not sure, I mean, Roots was very important. Um, the reboot of Roots that came out two years ago was important. Um, but it's so easy to go wrong, so. Yeah. Uh, I know that one, um, you've written also very uh, good articles, or great articles about music, and I was thinking, you mentioned that David Bowie also plays a role in every book you play, not literally, as I thought, because uh, <laughs> I, I read uh, incorrectly, but uh, how, how tell, you, tell us something about how music plays a part in what you do. Sure, well, I, uh, uh, I grew up in New York and it's very noisy, so noise, you know, there's always like a car alarm going off or a police siren going by or your neighbors being choked to death upstairs. So there's always like noise around. And um, so I'm used to writing with, you know, uh, noise. And so I've always played, done homework with music and in college and now, now I write with music. And it's, I have like a, a 3,000, sorry, song playlist that goes from The Clash to uh, Run DMC to Daft Punk to, um, I have a little ESPF in there, and it just uh, keeps me company. And I've listened to you know David Bowie for um, you know thirty something years, and um, I thought when he passed I should give a shout out to him in the acknowledgments. And uh, I also thanked Prince and Sonic Youth because whenever I get to the whenever I finish a book, the last page of the first draft, I know it's only like three hours of work or two pages. I always put on Purple Rain by Prince, and uh, uh, Daydream Nation by Sonic Youth, two of my beloved albums, and they always bring me home. It means I've got to the last page. I wasn't like hit by a truck. Um, and so I know that I finally did it. And so I thank David Bowie, and then in between writing the Augments and the book coming out, Prince died, and I was like, am I like the angel of death here? <laughs> you know, watch out, Sonic Youth. <laughs> but I wanted to um, give a shout out to, you know, I take inspiration from movies and music and books, and so I want to, uh, you know, after all that time, sort of say thanks. Okay, so if this, if this book would be a, a, an album, this Underground Railroad is to Colson White, what mm, is to <laughs> David Bowie? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, um, well, I'm going to go with It's My Purple Rain and My Daydream Nation. Okay, okay. <laughs> thank you so much, Colson. Thank you so much for the, for the book and for the conversation. Thank you, and there. thank you, guys. <laughs>